Hello, and welcome to this week's Key Voices, conversations with folk in and around education. I'm Caroline Doherty. This week, my guest is Dr. Adam Bodison, who is CEO of Nason. Adam has been on the podcast before, um, but today he's talking to us about the governance handbook for SEND and inclusion, schools that work for all learners, his new book about the importance of all governors understanding their responsibilities with regard to SEND. We recorded this podcast at the very, very end of last year. So anything that we say that doesn't take into account the current situation in schools, that will be why. It also coincides with the launch of Nason's free membership offer. So whatever your role in school, but particularly for governors, you can have a look at their website. Details um, will be um, linked to from from the information about this podcast and you can learn more about Nason's free membership offer. But it's a really interesting conversation. It helps me to think a lot about my own school and governing body and whether or not a review of SEND governance would be a good idea. I'm really thinking about how to look critically at the information provided to you in governing body meetings and really think about how to, to run schools that actually work for all pupils um, and um, are truly inclusive. So lots of really um, useful and practical ideas. I hope you enjoy it. And as ever, I'd just like to remind listeners that this podcast is an opportunity to open up debate and discussion around topics. The views my guests and I are about to express are not the view of the key. For in-depth authoritative articles and the latest issues in education, check out thekeysupport.com. So today I am joined by Dr. Adam Bodison, who is CEO of Nason. Hi, Adam. Hi, Caroline. Um, so we're going to talk uh, a little bit about your new book um, about governance and, and SEND. Why did you feel this book was particularly needed right now? Well, look, I, I've sat on a number of uh, governing bodies, both at local level in terms of schools, but but also um, at uh, kind of multi-academy trust level in, in, in terms of um, that, that, that trustee role. And it's, it's quite clear to me that there are these really committed individuals um, who really care about SEND and often um, go above and beyond to make sure that SEND is as high quality as it could be and, and, and provide that really appropriate support and challenge. However, it's often just one or a small number of individuals uh, who, who really um, have that, that, that level of expertise and commitment and actually send an inclusion of the responsibility of the whole board. And so I, 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 it's very easy, I think, if you're, if you're chairing a board or, uh, or you're on the board and you know that you've got people who, who are good at this, who, who are also on the board to say, okay, well, let them get on with it. But actually what we want uh, is everybody to take that responsibility on but the question then comes is to how do you do it you know what what is it that you actually want me to do as, as a governor that will really make a difference and that's what the book's all about really um and if we think about the the SEND code of practice it's really clear that you know that message comes through that we want every teacher to be a teacher of children and young people with send but of course for that to happen we need every leader to be 
a leader ascend and leadership in my book starts at board level not even at school school leadership level it's higher than that at the board level and it's if the board prioritizes send and really has a focus on that then i think you'll see that flowing uh, right through the school um so as i say governors they're committee people they give up their time so they obviously care but this book just will really help them to focus the limited time they've got on the things that will make the greatest difference for children and young people with send yeah, just reflecting on that, I mean, I guess what those of us who are governors are used to is this sort of linked link governor structure, which says, I am a volunteer, I'm a bit time poor, I can't be an expert on everything. Um, this person seems enthusiastic or, you know, whatever, or they've always done it. Um, let's make it their role and responsibility kind of job done. And what you're saying there is actually this is this is so fundamental that that actually everybody needs to be engaged yeah i am and i think a really good analogy would be safeguarding mm. so you know we have somebody who is the link governor for safeguarding in the same way we have a send governor and that's right because you want somebody who's really looking at the the, the detail in this who has the relationships with whether it be the sanker or the designated safeguarding lead do you want that but 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 equally if i was to talk to any governor in the country and i was to say do you feel you have a responsibility for safeguarding? I guarantee they'd all say yes, even though there's a safeguarding governor. And I and, and, and that's because it is, as you say, of fundamental importance. And I think the same is true of SEND. Yes, we want somebody focusing on it, but we want everybody to take responsibility. Great. So what would, would you say that um, all governors need to understand about SEND in general? Um, in order to do their, their role well? And, and what do they need to know in particular in relation to their school? Yes, that's a really good question. Uh, so I'm just reflect on something that you said before, which was, look, we can't expect governors to be experts in everything. And, um, you know, having worked uh, in, the, in the sector of SEND for a while now, um, it, you, you, nobody could be an expert in, in SEND in that sense, because it's just enormous and very complex um, and so we certainly can't expect governors to, to all governors to know everything about SEND and we, and we wouldn't expect that. Um, so a good starting point for me is that, that SEND code of practice. Now it's quite a lengthy document, 292 pages in total. We, we obviously don't want um, uh, our governors to be reading all of that. But what I would say is that there is one chapter in there, chapter six, which is 20 pages long. That, that's the bit that really focuses on what schools' responsibilities are. Uh, and I think it's not unreasonable to ask governors to be really familiar with chapter six. And in that chapter, it talks, for example, about the four broad areas of need. And, and I think that every governor in the country should be able to name the four broad areas of need. Um, the reason I think that's important is because when they're making strategic decisions about the school, if they haven't got a good sense of the different types of SEND, then they're potentially thinking about youngsters with SEND as one homogenous group. And, and um, you know, that's not to unintentionally get it, sorry, that's not to intentionally get it wrong as it were, but they, they could then um, by accident, if you like, make a decision which they think is the right decision, but it doesn't work because the distribution of needs isn't, uh, uh, is not known. So, so I think that's the first thing. The second thing for me is, when we think about SEND, it's very easy to think about those with the most complex needs, you know, those with education, health and care plans, because they're the ones that uh, often get the most airtime and they're the ones which uh, obviously bring money into the school, um, obviously come with the most costs as well, that's why. Um, but I would just remind boards that 80% of children with SEND 
are actually at the SEN support level, so they don't have um, an education, health and care plan. And so uh, I, I would encourage governors to be thinking in their own school about actually what are we doing for you know, the four and five children who don't have a, have a plan, how do we know we're getting um, that right? Um, one thing I um, talk about in the book um, uh, is the difference between the social model of SEND and the medical model of SEND. And it's quite interesting in this country where we, we haven't kind of settled on one model or the other. We kind of use both at the, at the same time. But, 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 but what's fundamental about that is the medical model of SEND is about um, it's almost about identifying a medical issue, if you like, or diagnosing a problem um, and then trying to fix that problem, which assumes that there's a, a, a problem with the individual. Um, and, and, and we do see we do see that kind of approach being taken. But the social model is more around removing barriers in the environment. And that's the bit sometimes that governors have got the most control over the school environment. But it's the bit that often gets the least airtime. Um, and, and a good analogy I use in the book is this one of superpowers. So um, what I say is if you imagine a world where um, I don't know, some people had a superpower, and I think in the book I talk about X-ray vision, but it could be any superpower. Um, and let's suppose that 1% of the world's population had this superpower and 99% didn't. If you were in the 99% that didn't, then you wouldn't necessarily consider yourself to have a, have a disability because most people can't, didn't, haven't got this superpower, right? In fact, you'd probably say the 1% that did have it uh, are particularly exceptionally talented or, or gifted in some way. However, if you were then to change that analogy and say, let's imagine 99% of people had this superpower and you were in the 1% that didn't, you'd feel really hard done by. And in fact, people would, would think that actually there's some deficit there and that you, you, you've not got something which most people have. And what's interesting about that, that example is, um, you and what you can and can't do, your abilities have not changed there. The only thing that's changed is everything else around you. Um, and, and that for me draws out the difference between the social model and the medical model uh, quite well. Great stuff. And yeah, I guess just thinking um, more around that, that issue of, of what governors should, should know about SEND in, in relation to their school. You, you also talk in, in the book about the sort of distribution of children with SEND um, across schools and, and why some schools attract more than, than others. What, what do governors kind of need to understand about that? Yeah, so every January, schools um, submit their census data um, uh, it used to be via the local authority, often now it's directly uh, to the Department for Education. Um, and in some schools, that just is an administrative exercise and they just submit it and then they never look at it again until the next time. And that's okay, that's fine. Um, but actually, if you've gone to the trouble of collating that data, it'd be useful to be able to use that data. And that, that, um, within that census data, one of the things that's reported um, is the primary um, uh, special education needs that children have in the school. Um, so I was talking earlier on about the four broad areas. This is kind of um, a, a bit more um, acute than that in terms of, uh, of the primary needs. So this is very specifically looking at um, things like vision impairments, for example, and, um, and, and, and those who have um, uh, social, emotional, mental health needs and so on. So if you've got that kind of breakdown of what the spread of primary needs are in your school, It'd be useful to be able to compare that to other schools uh, in your area um, and also to the national averages. And the good news is that this census data 
is published in July of every year on the DFE website. In fact, they've got it for the last 10 years on there. Um, and, uh, uh, and, and they do break that down regionally and nationally as well. So, so that's quite a useful exercise, I think, for boards uh, to look at um, how, they, how their distribution of needs compares to what's going on regionally and nationally. Now, just to be clear, it's not to say that it should be the same. Um, there might be very good reasons why it's not the same. But actually, it's a really good exercise to understand why it's not the same. So, so for example, if you, if you realise that as a school, you have twice the proportion of students with speech-language communication needs than other schools in your area or indeed nationally, then you might want to know why that is. Is it because you're really, really good at identifying students with those types of needs and actually this is a strength in the school? Or is it because you're over-identifying those needs and that's uh, due to some other issue, uh, um, uh, you know, in terms of the provision not being good enough at lower down the school, for example, and that's resulting in these communication needs later on? Um, and and so it so it just gives a way into some of to some of those conversations, um, and and often it comes back to that accuracy of identification. And I mean, my school, for example, where I'm where I'm a governor, we have a specialist resource provision, and um, that has led to inc you know an increase over a, a long period of time of of, of more children with SEND in the school, but. You know that has been harnessed and turned into a particular strength of the school and then um, obviously you then have a reputation for being able to support children better and and so it grows but obviously that is something very important for governors to to understand about their school's identity and and ethos um, and and those kinds of things and and presumably in some situations the the reverse may be may be true and maybe your school has a reputation where, where people are, are less likely to send their children if they have SEND and again that that might be something for a board to understand as well I would think. Yeah you're right I mean one of the phrases I use in the book is I talk about uh, schools which are, are send magnets um, and, and and by that I mean as, as you just said you know you get schools that get a reputation for being inclusive and everybody in the area knows that this is the school to get your children in if you want them to have their needs met you want them to be included um, and of course uh, if, you, if you've got schools which are um, taking disproportionate numbers of children with, with SEND that means as you say the opposite is is true um, and uh, you know I've, I've been talking about the distribution of need uh, and I think what we're kind of alluding to here is the overall proportion of children with SEND so we've got 15 percent um, uh, of the of, of the population of children would ha would have send um, um, changes a little bit over time. If anything, it's going up at the moment. But let's say it's fifteen percent of that, and in that within that fifteen percent, you've got a twelve percent and three percent at a breakdown. So the three percent, if you like, is the children with education, health, and care plans, and the twelve percent is those with, um, with without a, a plan who would be at the level of SEN support. Um, now, if you're looking at your school and you're seeing that the overall proportions in terms of your pupil population are significantly below any of those numbers, the 12, the 3 or the overall 15, um, then you want you want to know why that is. Um, and, and similarly, if, if, if it's particularly high, you want to know why that is. And if I was on a board where it was really high and I thought that was because some of my neighbouring schools were perhaps uh, shirking their responsibilities, then I might, as, as a governor in one school, uh, want to, to to have some conversations with my other colleagues in other schools in other areas and say come on but you know we, we all have a responsibility here for making sure we get this right um, um uh, the irony of course is that those schools who are some magnets who really 
do a good job in this space can often become overwhelmed uh, with need um, and, and, and the financial burden actually can, can, can often take its toll, which is mm. a shame. And, and yes, obviously, from a governor's perspective, kind of understanding, you know, why your staffing structure or your staffing budget is a particular way is often is often linked to the size of your kind of um, cohort of children with S E and D as as well. So yes, there's, there's 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 lots of there's lots of reasons to sort of interrogate that. And um, when I um, read the, read the book, um, it did it did strike me perhaps that. Um, um, a, a good thing that somebody might want to do as a result of that is do a send review of governance. And you you provide a lot of really helpful resources to sort of help boards think about what they're, they're doing. But what are the sort of main practical things that a board should consider before they decide to, to go through the process? Uh, yeah, again, a really good question. Um, and, and I should just say um, a lot of the review tools um, that are, are referred to in the book um, are freely available on the Send Gateway website um, and they've been DFE funded as part of the whole school Send consortium work um, and so there, there is a specific one there that looks at, at, at Send governance and that, that's worth looking at and in there it will talk about a lot of the preparation uh, that needs to be done but in terms of practical steps I think the first thing is that um, at, at board level there needs to be a commitment to not just the financial commitment to what might come out of a review and therefore need to be uh, actioned, if you like, but, but but also financial commitment to the review itself. You know, there's no if you're going to do it, do it properly. There's no point trying to do it on, on the cheap, as it were. But also the the actual human commitment. There's a time commitment to doing a review. It's not a quick uh, exercise. Um, if it's done properly, it will really challenge people um, uh, in terms of their own. Uh, ethical values sometimes as well because obviously governors go into this all believing they're doing the right thing of course they do you know they're good people and sometimes these reviews can it can, can turn out that perhaps we've not been doing the right thing and that can really challenge people's fundamental beliefs so I think there needs to be that commitment in terms of the time and the money both during and beyond the review I think the other thing to think about is what type of review you want um, and that will depend where you are on your kind of inclusion journey um, so the very uh, kind of basic level, you can do a self-evaluation um, and that might feed into kind of wider action plan and so on. It's an internal process, um, so it can be fairly private, if you like, uh, and, and so on. Um, at the other extreme, you've got a kind of external review where you might pay someone to come in and actually, you know, lift all the stones up and have a look what's there, as it were, and give you a, a formal report with recommendations and so on. Um, and that can feel a bit more kind of inspection like you know and it depends whether you, you know you want that um in my, in my experience the the kind of premium approach if you like is a peer review and i think there's lots of value to that um, um both both financially and, and 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 professionally um and a peer review where you might team up with another school or maybe maybe another school in your area which is drawing from a similar population similar size and you might say look we'll come and have a look at what you're doing you can come and have a look at what we're doing let's Kind of have that kind of critical friend relationship let's be really honest with each other and often um uh, what you find there is good practice that you can draw both ways but it's the beginning of a really important relationship it starts to break down some of those send magnet issues and other things that are going on that i talked about earlier on um, so it's a really good way in F final thing i'd just say on this is any review whichever whatever the mode is however it's funded and, and whatever else it must be 
built around co-production um you know if it doesn't really have children and families right at the heart of of, of the review then it's not going to be effective because at the end of the day it's all about those children and their families that's really interesting in terms of the the peer review um because i you know something that i've always thought about about governance and governing bodies is often people just don't have much experience of anything beyond being a governor in their school and and having kind of more access to what other people are doing and how other people are working um you know could be could be really valuable there and as you say the start of, of, of kind of collaboration and conversation about all sorts of things i was wondering if you had any um um thoughts about like when in a when in the year might it be a good time to to think about about doing a review of this kind yeah, I don't think there's any particular time of year that's um, a good time, but I think there are some times of year to avoid, probably, is, is probably a better way of thinking yeah. about it. So, uh, you know, it's going to take up a lot of senior leadership time, um, and particularly Senko time as well. So I think you don't want to be doing it at, at transition points, for example, where obviously an exam periods and things like that, where obviously senior leaders are going to be really um, tied up elsewhere. So as long as you avoid things like that, I, th I, I think it can be done at any time of the year. Uh, in terms of the point around um, the kind of in, inward versus outward facing kind of governance, if you like, I, I, th I think one of the things I would point to is that lots of governors do, do attend training in their local area. And sometimes that's put on by the local authority or it might be part of the, the MAT if they're in MAT. But that's a really good opportunity to meet other governors in other schools, particularly if the training is SEND training, because you know they're obviously somebody who's interested in that area. Um, and that can be a way of of, um, of making some of those relationships that are needed and building up some of those relationships so that you, you have a level of trust to uh, really inform a, a really effective uh, review of, of SEND governance. Thank you. And um, obviously there's, you know, we, we're talking about the, the importance of, of, of governance and, and the governing board here. But um, you you very clearly uh, explain the sort of respective roles of of the Senko um, governors um, and the head teacher and the kind of interplay between them. And obviously, all all three of these individuals need to have a strategic approach to supporting children with with send in school. Um, this is a bit of a tricky one, but what would you advise a, a sort of send governor to do? If they're if they're concerned that maybe the leadership team isn't putting enough focus on a strategic approach to set. Yeah, I, I mean, in the book, I talk about the relationship between the three, the kind of Senka, the head teacher and the Send governors. I, I think I describe it as a triangle of Send leadership. Um, and, and, and I think I think that's right. They all have a, a role to play, but those roles are all different. And I think it's for any of those in any of those three if you like to challenge the other two if they think it's not right so it's not just the kind of the, the, the governor challenging the school leadership for example it could be the school leader saying to the board why aren't you why aren't you prioritizing sending enough because i think it's a priority you know so it could go anyway in that sense um but in terms of what to do if if, if, there's, if there's a worry about it not enough focus i think the first thing is to try and understand why why is that because i think unless the problem is well understood uh the solution risks being kind of ineffective um so for example it might be that there's not a focus on send because there's a, a fear of um causing offense or getting it wrong i mean I, I i've spoken to some inspectors for example who who said to me that they didn't um 
they, they didn't ask a lot about send when they were doing school inspections because they were worried about offending somebody by using the wrong language and things so rather than do that they just avoid it altogether which was you know not very helpful <laughs> it, you know so it could be that issue it could be a confidence issue so I'm, I'm imagining a situation where if you've got a head teacher who's maybe come through not the pastoral route into leadership but maybe the kind of more um, standards route into leadership and they're working with a, a brand new Senko and neither of them may feel particularly uh, confident in the role it might be that you know that they won't necessarily want to expose that necessarily so there'll be a so that be could be a, a reason why um so it depends what the what what, what the issue is it, in some schools they actually might believe they are prioritizing scent um and, and and maybe they are but they're not talking about it enough uh, at board level because board isn't asking for the right papers and for example or the right data so really understanding that problem I think is important and this is why when I when I go back to earlier on uh, this this thing about governors asking the right questions um, and being able to ask targeted questions based because they know that chapter six of the code, code of practice that just gets that conversation going um, and so these things can start to start to come out. Yeah it's interesting what you were saying there around um, kind of co con concerns about about offence or, or the, the sort of the, the wrong the wrong questions there from the of inspection perspective and I, I thought just occurred to me that 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 maybe um people struggle to handle it strategically um in cases where they feel like you know this is very much about individual children um or, or you know or or the needs of every child are so different um that they don't they don't know how to to, to, to make a sort of strategic conversation about it is that something you've encountered yeah, and I've encountered that actually both in my past life as a teacher, but also from a strategic level now. And and I think the answer to both the, the answer to both is quite similar. So, if I just reflect on my time as a teacher for a moment, one of the things I always used to struggle with was uh, really effective differentiation um, and struggle with it in the sense of having the time to do it. Uh, and it's exactly the problem you've just described, which is I'm thinking, right, I've got 30 children in my class. In fact, some of the classes were closer to 40 in a couple of the schools I was in. So um, what I would what I would do is I'd plan my, my maths lesson and, and then I'd think, right, okay, I've got half a dozen children here with very specific needs. How do I make this lesson I've planned work for those children? And there might be six different types of need. And so, you know, I'm doing, you know, an, an enlarged sheet for this person and I'm, you know, something slightly different task for this person and so on. And it used to take ages. And then someone said to me one day, Adam, why don't you just start by planning your lesson so it works for the six and then it'll work for everybody else anyway? Um, and it was like it was this big penny drop moment, and I thought, oh, why, why wasn't I always doing doing that? And I think the same is true at, at a strategic level. And it comes back to this eighty percent I was talking about children at SEN support. If if actually the universal level of provision in a school is really high quality, really inclusive, then there will be fewer children that need to have individual adaptations made mm -hmm. because the universal offer, if you like, is. Is, is so good. And I think that's what uh, governing bodies need to focus on. Not only will it be more cost effective, but actually it will be a lot less stressful for, for those in the workforce. And the principle there is that when you get it right for children with SEND, what works for them often is good practice for all children. Yes, yes. No, I think back to a, a visit that um, I did to a, to a school where their approach was um, that, you know, any child could access certain things that might make them more comfortable, be that um, ear defenders while they were trying to, to concentrate 
or access to a small room that they'd converted to be a kind of sensory area. And you didn't have to have any kind of certification or plan to, to access it. If you, you know, if you knew you needed it and wanted it, then you could have it. And and I just thought it's a really interesting way to to, to think about things and you know, less less stigma for, for other children and, and just recognizing that, you know, everybody's got individual needs to be to be met. Um, we just yeah. m- might not have the same um, you know, register and understanding of it. I think that's right. Um, the, the other thing that's interesting as well, just in terms of helping this to be a kind of strategic priority, we, we briefly mentioned Ofsted before, um, the not-so-new uh, education inspection framework now, um, does uh, has really kind of emphasised uh, the importance of inclusion uh, in a way that probably none of the previous inspection frameworks uh, have done uh, to the same extent. Um, and, the, you know, the message I, I, I've taken away from that, it's not possible anymore for a school to get an outstanding grade from Ofsted without also being able to demonstrate that they're inclusive. And, and, and so if I was uh, you know, on a governing body, I'd be wanting to say to my school leaders, uh, actually, how are we demonstrating that we're inclusive? What does inclusion mean for our school and, and the context of, of the community that we serve and so on? Um, and so there's actually a, um, a, a, a push from the regulator now to get this on, on the agenda. So this is something that every school leader in the country cares about and probably every governor as well. So, so I think that will really help in terms of prioritising sending schools. Great stuff. And yeah, I was, I was thinking a lot about data because you know, increasingly as governors, we, you know, presented with a lot of information and, you know, it can be, be tricky, you know, even in the, in the best of times to make, to make sense of attainment data and progress data and all these sorts of things. But I think it is, it is much harder when it, when it comes to SEND because, um, the, the, you know, the vast majority of governors may not have a strong handle on what, what good looks like, uh, so what, what data should governors be focusing on and, and how can they best use that to, to understand how inclusive their school is? Um, yeah, so I, I mean, we've already talked about the kind of census data mm. and how that, how that could be used. So I think that's, you know, that's a good starting point. Um, I think what I didn't say when I was talking about that was, um, uh, was how you look at that, how you should look at how that changes over time as well. Um, so we, we, when we talked about it before, we were almost talking as a snapshot right now how are we comparing kind of regionally and nationally but but when you start looking at your census data over multiple years and you start to see actually you know our SEMH uh, cohorts that social emotional mental health needs is going up every year you can start to then make uh, projections and say well actually you know if this carries on we know that in three years time we're going to have this proportion of pupils with social emotional mental health needs actually is our workforce equipped for that so and, and, and then you can start making really sensible strategic decisions. Now, at one extreme, it could be, you know, it might be that you need to have a, a specially resourced provision like we talked about before. It might be that it's an investment in professional development, but the point is you're using that data to drive strategic decision-making and for the board to be making sure that there is sufficient resource to fund uh, those things and, and, and planning time that goes into it. So I think that's important. Um, I, I think the other thing as well is looking at all the data that, boards already get but doing that through a send lens the board talk so the book talks a lot about this principle of think send and it applies really well to data sets so a good example would be 
um, um, attendance data uh, or absence data and, and, and looking at that and particularly thinking about unauthorised absence because if you see that that's starting to creep up or it's too high um, compared to kind of national averages and so on that could be an indicator that, there's, um, that the school is inaccessible in some way um, or, 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 or not inclusive. None of these things by themselves, by the way, tell a full story, but all of these things are indicators. Um, uh, the other thing you might look at is, is financial data. Um, so um, often as board, board members, you might be presented with, this is how much we spent on CPD. I, I might be saying, well, actually, in, within that CPD, uh, uh, spend, how much of it was spent on SEN and how much of it was spent on, let's say, social and emotional mental health, if we know that was an area that was going up, or speech language communication. And and and, and if you'd want to make sure that the CPD spend, the higher spend, was aligned to the highest areas of needs, for example. And it might be a good reason why it's not, but then again, you're having that conver conversation, which, which I think is important. Uh, perhaps the, the most important thing in terms of data for, for me is the impact of, of, of spend. Um, and we haven't really talked about the SEN notional budget, but we couldn't possibly have a conversation without talking about that. The, probably the most controversial bit of school funding in the sense that half of people don't believe it exists and, and, and others are saying, why aren't we spending it properly? So, uh, so I, I think a, a good analogy for me is the one with pupil premium. Um, so every year, board members will receive a report which says to them, look, this is how much we had to spend on disadvantaged children. This is what we spent it on, and this was the impact. I think even on the same form, the same bit of paperwork, it'd be really good to, to, to get, for governors to have an understanding of how uh, income that, that school has got in relation to SEN, the SEN national budget, how was that spent and what was the impact of that? And I think that would give a good uh, indication uh, to, to the board about how inclusive the school may or may not be. Um, I'm just thinking, oh yeah, one final thing uh, just, just come to me, which is around surveys. Um, uh, we, we, you know, lots of, of schools will do surveys of, of parents and so on, um, and often they'll just use the Ofsted questions, which is fine, but it might be worth asking if you around specifically around uh, inclusion. Um, and because when you start asking families about it, children about it, asking the workforce about it, and you start to triangulate some of those views, that can give a really good insight into how inclusive a school may be. Yeah, I'm sure that, that must be um, fascinating to see. And and thinking even more specifically around kind of data uh, about targets and, and outcomes, how how should schools be gauging the potential of, of children with SCND when, you know, that is a kind of complex, you know, sometimes non-linear progression for them? And, and, and how should governors kind of get a handle on, on what good, good outcomes look like for pupils with SCND, where, where it might be quite varied depending on, on the level of need? Yeah, so I, I think the first thing to say is, the biggest misconception is that send uh, send correlates with um, uh, lower attainment. That, that's not necessarily true, and I would I would want to kind of challenge that fairly strongly. I mean, first of all, the eighty percent of pupils who are at the SEN support level—that's four in five pupils with send. If they're at the SEN support level, that suggests they should be able to achieve as well as others. If if, if the teaching is effective. So there's no excuse for them not to have, those children not to have the same uh, kind of attainment and academic outcomes. 
But even when you get into more complex needs, I think one thing I would say is that of the primary areas of need, so there are 14 of them that are reported in the census, only three of them are actually related to cognition and learning. So you've got the vast majority of those that are, are not cognitive needs. And, and again, they should be able to achieve academically as well. So there's no, for example, there's no reason why somebody who has a hearing impairment should not be able to get the same academic outcomes, if not better, than someone without a hearing impairment. And if, the, if they're not, then actually that's not necessarily an issue around SEN provision, that's an accessibility issue in the school. That's quite a different problem. So I, I think, what does that mean at board level? So uh, I think a lot of data that, that boards get will break um, uh, progress and attainment data down by SEN and non-SEN. And I suppose what I'm suggesting is that you want a breakdown of that SEN almost by cognitive and non-cognitive needs. Um, and so, so that I say those with non-cognitive needs, they should be doing it as well. Um, those with the cognitive needs, which uh, I think is, is, is more complex, I, you know, I, I would hope that they either are those with education, health and care plans, or if not, the, the school has some other kind of individual education plan for them. And that, the, the outcomes in those plans ought to have been co-produced. And what I'd be wanting to know at a board level is what proportion of children who have those plans are on track to meet those agreed outcomes. Um, and, 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 you know, that, that ought to be pretty high, right? Because if it's not, then... Um, then, then there's a problem. But the point is that those outcomes are not necessarily always academic. They may be a mixture of, of other things and that broader, broader notion uh, of outcomes. But the principle here I'm getting to is that what we don't want, um, and I've seen this not so recently, but certainly in some of the schools I was involved in some years ago, um, seen this, this thing where leaders would present their data and then they would present a shadow set of data which had you know the, the data for the children with their SEN taken out and they'd almost say well look my shadow data is above national average so that's okay you know we don't want to be hiding the SEN data away we want to be really proud about what our children with SEN have achieved um, and actually that might mean reporting on other types of outcomes but that's okay because you know and that also helps build the understanding of of the, of the board um in in that case but I think what you're saying there is really um you know the expectation from governors is that you should be being ambitious for all your children and there may well be good reasons you know for that not to be you know in some cases but but that yeah everyone should be aiming high and you should be concerned if if that if those data sets are presented in a way that suggests that um you know SEND is somehow a kind of catch-all um term and experience for a large set of children in your school who may not be on track um, yeah, that, that's absolutely right. Yeah, that's yeah in, important points there. And thinking ahead to next year, obviously this this year has potentially seen a lot of a lot of disruption to children and families, um, you know, of, of children with SEN, SEND and and potentially sort of more absence from 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 sort of physically being in school in, in some cases. Um, but sort of looking looking ahead to whatever next year throws at us. What should governors kind of keep their eyes peeled for? Um, well, if, if I start with my own organisation first, so in terms of Nason, we um, have made a big commitment, actually, um, and it, it kind of came before COVID and all, all, all of that. But I think it's timely, uh, uh, you know, in, in a sense, given what's happened. And what we've done is we've committed to making our membership free. Um, so, you, you know, breaking years of history in, in, in a sense, but we want to make sure that the really 
high quality offer that we have at NACE and is available to every uh, everybody who's working with children and people with Zen right across England. So, so, so that, that, that will be available to everybody from, from January for free. So I'd encourage governors, if you're not already a member of NASEN, then sign up in January because you can get access to all these things I've been talking about. Um, alongside that, and this is how we're paying for it, we've got some SEND services, uh, which are new kind of things that we're bringing in. And there are two I'd just point out in particular. One which is Nason's annual webinar pass. So uh, it, it's, it costs £350 per year. I think there's actually an introductory offer which uh, uh, which runs till till March, uh, which which means it's less than £200. So well worth uh, get, get into that if you can. But that gives you access to this year. It was more than 70 webinars. Um, so it's pretty, pretty good value, really. And, and obviously, they're all about all about send. Uh, and the second thing is a Senko support service. Um, it's a pretty hard job and a lonely job being a, a, a Senko, uh, and so we want to make sure that we, we are there for, for them and to, to help with some of the very specific issues that they might be facing in their school. So, so I think there are things to look out for. Um, in terms of policy level, we've got the send review coming. Uh, feels like it's been coming forever. Uh, you know, it's sort of waiting for a train to pull in for, to the station and you can see it coming a mile away. It never quite seems <laughs> to get any closer. But, but apparently it is coming, um, and I, I think we can expect it during the summer term of this year in terms of when we actually see the detail of that. But, but I, my sense from, you know, talking to colleagues around this is that this will be a more uh, ambitious um, and radical change than perhaps the last set of send reforms, because it's not just looking at education, it's looking cross government. So not just health and social care, but for example, they're starting to think about um, long-term outcomes so employment so departments of work and pensions are involved uh, you know all of this will cost a lot more money so the treasury is involved so it becomes a much bigger review so and I think that will be um, having a big impact on what's going on and of course that's coming at the same time as the three-year comprehensive spending review so um, I, I think governors need to be watching out for that um, and and I also know that, that there are consultations coming uh, this next year in relation to both high needs funding but also the school funding formulas and again we've been down these roads before um, and they're always quite controversial um, but I think it's important we've got to get it right because schools now and the, the school system is operating in a fundamentally different way than it was when these systems were set up so we, we, we do need to, 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 to look at that. Indeed and any final words for our listeners? Um, yeah, two, two things I was thinking. Um, so the first thing is, I think this this next 12 months, we've really got to look after our leaders. Um, and, and I'm thinking specifically there of, of head teachers and, and Senkos, but actually leaders in, in, in the general sense, because during the kind of uh, the kind of pandemic period, the nature of, of school leaders is that they will plough on, they will step up, they will do whatever it takes um, to, to, to make sure that, that, that children uh, are, are well served. Um, and, and school leaders in particular, not only are they stepping up as is the whole workforce, but they are also absorbing the stresses and strains of everybody else in their school and the wider school community. Um, and, and when we finally get to the end of this terrible period um, and everybody breathes a sigh of relief, our school leaders at that point, I think there is a big risk in the system um, uh, in terms of their, their well-being, and so I would say to governors who are out there listening to this, really think about your your leaders and how you look after them, because we don't want a mass exodus of really high-quality people from the system. Um, and in particular, I, I wonder whether 
as a sector, we need to think about professional supervision. You know, if you think about in the health and social care sectors, and I'm, I don't mean supervision here in a, in a kind of a performance sense, but I mean in a, in a supportive sense where, you know, they, they, they have these professional supervision relationships where they can go and off, they have the opportunity to offload their stresses and so on, so they can look after their own well-being. We don't really have that in education. But, you know, given, given what we've all just been through, I, I do wonder whether now's the time for, for some kind of national investment in this area. And it's, it's something that I know that unions are thinking about as well. So, so that's my first plea, which is let's look after our leaders now and, 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 and going forwards. And the second thing is just a, a thank you, really. Thank you to everybody who's out there working with and for Children with SEND. Thank you for all you do and for all you continue to do. And thank you, Adam, for talking to us today. And thank you very much for listening. Key Voices is produced by The Key, giving education leaders the knowledge to act. Members of The Key for School Leaders can access hundreds of articles on the latest issues in education at thekeysupport.com. And please tell us what you think of the podcast. Rate, review and subscribe or email me at caroline.doherty at thekeysupport.com with your thoughts and suggestions.